Hello, and welcome to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Extraordinary tales from around the globe and throughout history. I'm Dan Benson. On the 2nd of July 1982, several airline pilots preparing for descent into Los Angeles International Airport radioed the control tower with a very extraordinary claim. It was a UFO sighting, but not in the truest sense. The craft had actually been correctly identified. It's just that it seemed that there must have been some kind of mistake. Surely it couldn't be what they thought it was. You see, it looked for all intents and purposes like a man flying a piece of garden furniture at 16,000 feet. But as peculiar as the sight must have been, it turns out they were absolutely correct. Born on the 19th of April 1949, Larry Walters had developed a desire to fly, but fate had other plans. In 1967, Walters joined the US Air Force and went to Vietnam as a means to an end. His intention was to learn to fly a plane, but unfortunately for him, it was deemed by US Air Force doctors that his eyesight was far too poor to become a pilot. And so Larry Walters ultimately became a truck driver and lived an unexceptional life with his fiancée Carol Van Dusen in the suburb of San Pedro, where he would, from time to time, sit in the cool of the evening and watch the jetliners pass by overhead from the comfort of his favourite lawn chair. You might already have guessed where this is going. In mid-1982, he began assembling equipment for an idea that he had had. Larry wanted to float in his favourite lawn chair, tethered to the ground, so it would only reach a height just above the rooftops. He'd spend a couple of hours enjoying the view and come back down again. For this, he figured he would need helium balloons, and so he bought 42 weather balloons and some helium bottles with which to fill them. He purchased a BB gun to pop the balloons, thus bringing him back to Earth, and some water jugs to balance things out. Now, most of the articles I used to research this story uniformly make the claim that, as I said, Larry intended to float lazily above his backyard at an altitude of around 30 feet for a couple of hours, but call me cynical if you will, I can't imagine anyone thinking they would need 42 weather balloons, which contain around 33 cubic feet of helium each, to gain 30 feet of altitude. But even if this was a genuine miscalculation, it's some of the other equipment he assembled that makes me suspicious. He had spent almost $4,000, which was quite a sum in 1982, and the equipment he had assembled also included an altimeter, a CB radio, and a parachute. Now make of that what you will, it's possible he was just being overly cautious. Nonetheless, on the 1st of July 1982, Larry inflated the balloons and tied them to the chair with nylon cable. The next morning... He put on the parachute, strapped himself into his lawn chair, which he had named Inspiration One, with some sandwiches and a drink, and said his farewells before instructing Carol and a small gathering of friends to release the guy wire. But, allegedly, the guy wire broke prematurely, and he was suddenly propelled into the air like a catapult, 
before he knew what was going on. Lucky for him, he had bought an altimeter because it wasn't too long before he found himself at 16,000 feet, being gawked at by bewildered airline passengers. It's also lucky he brought a parachute for his day of floating languidly above the rooftops at 30 feet because he had misgivings about shooting out any of the balloons, fearing he may unbalance himself and fall from the chair. And so he sat frozen, both from abject terror and from the temperature, which was around minus 15 degrees Celsius, for around an hour. As I said, he had brought a radio, and he managed to make contact with his friends and fiance, and also put out a mayday call, because, among other things, he wasn't travelling in the direction he intended. He had planned to go over the Mojave Desert at a modest height. He was actually travelling toward the Pacific Ocean at 16,000 feet. As it should happen, he drifted towards the approach corridor of LA International Airport, at which point panic caused him to at least attempt a descent, and he began shooting out balloons. But as if he wasn't in enough strife already, Larry dropped the gun. Fortunately, he had shot out enough balloons to descend, a tad quicker than was probably safe, and he knew it. Larry would later be quoted as saying, The part that was scary was the last 300 feet, with the rooftops and telephone poles coming up so fast. I was praying I would not hit one of those power lines and be fried or sizzled. End quote. He did indeed entangle in power lines, but it wasn't a problem. The police had received a call from Carol and cut the power to the area. Larry, although somewhat distressed, landed intact. As he was led away by police, a reporter asked why he had done it, to which he replied, A man can't just sit around. Larry Walters' story from this point is quite a sad one, really, and you can look into it if you want to, but I'm going to leave this story here, on a high note. Pun intended. You see, from Larry's extraordinary experience, we now have a new sport. Cluster ballooning. Ferdinand Fred Damara was born in Massachusetts in 1921 into a reasonably well-off family, but, if you know your history, the end of the 1920s would see a stock market crash and the suffering and financial hardship of the Great Depression. So at age 16, Fred decided to run away from home to become, of all things, a Trappist monk. But he wasn't at all suited to life in a monastery and, by age 19, had joined the army. Not too long into basic training, it dawned on him that he wasn't at all suited to army life either. But leaving the army presented a bigger challenge than leaving a monastery. By most accounts, he was asked to leave the monastery, which makes things even easier. But Fred had an idea. An idea that would come to define his whole life. Fred stole the identity of his tentmate, Anthony Ignolia, and under his new name, he joined the Navy. During his stint in the Navy, he would find himself reading university catalogues and settled on the idea of stealing the identity of one Dr. Robert Linton French, a researcher at Yale University. 
He went full tilt too, both applying for and acquiring copies of his birth certificate, marriage license and university degrees. Lucky too, because it would soon come to light that Anthony Ignolia was a fake ID. And so Fred faked his own death and became Robert Linton French full-time. Dr. Robert Linton French, a psychologist. He managed to blag his way into a teaching job in a college for the remainder of the Second World War, but in 1945, his past caught up with him. He was prosecuted for being a deserter, for which he served 18 months of a six-year sentence. At around the time of his release, a man by the name of Cecil Haman enrolled in university to become a lawyer. This isn't a parallel storyline where Cecil Haman defends Fred at some point in the future. Cecil Haman was Fred. He'd learned nothing from his stint in jail. He came out, assumed a new identity, and away he went again. But not for long. He quickly tired of study and took a shortcut, simply forging a PhD. Now, Dr. Cecil Haman took a job as a teacher at a Christian college. He would eventually leave, however, after first stealing the identity of one Dr. Joseph Sear. Sear was in the US setting up a medical practice, but he was born in Canada, and when the two men met, Fred Damara offered assistance to Sear to help sort through legal red tape. His ulterior motive was to make copies of Joseph Sear's identification. And with his new identity, he decided to go back to sea. He joined the Navy again, this time the Royal Canadian Navy. And this is where the story starts to get quite interesting. Damara had only basic medical training, and so he got talking to another doctor on board the ship he was assigned to and gave him a line about how he'd been talking to Canadian lumberjacks who worked in remote areas and due to the isolation didn't have access to medical help. Damara suggested a guidebook that briefly outlined medical procedures would be invaluable. The doctor he spoke to thought this was a splendid idea and wrote the booklet, which of course Damara intended to use himself as reference material. In 1951, at the age of 30, Damara was transferred to the HMCS Cayuga, a destroyer stationed off the coast of Korea. He was to be the ship's surgeon. The Korean War was raging, and he was in the thick of it. Things, as they say, were about to get real. For a time, he was able to avoid being uncovered as a fraud by getting his attendant to deal with any issues that, up to this point, weren't terribly serious. But that would all change when the Cayuga came upon combat casualties while patrolling the coast, and some of them were in a bad way they would require surgery. Damara was the only surgeon. He'd been put on the spot. No time to steal an identity and fake his own death. He was going to have to perform surgery. And you may be surprised to know that perform he did, using only the knowledge he had picked up on the job and the surgery for dummies manual he had convinced another doctor to write for him, he not only saved all the men's lives, including one fellow who had a bullet lodged in his chest, he did an exemplary job, even by the standards of a qualified surgeon. 
Things went so well, in fact, that Dr. Sear, or Damara, was recommended for a commendation and it wasn't long before the press got wind of the story. In turn, so did the real Dr. Sear, who read about his namesake's marvellous work in the newspapers. Of course, he wasn't too pleased about being impersonated and informed the Royal Canadian Navy, but the Navy, fearing humiliation on a global scale, quietly dismissed Damara and deported him. But the Royal Canadian Navy was to be embarrassed by the event anyway, because Damara, in 1952, would sell his story to Life magazine. The article would go on to inspire the 1960 feature film The Great Imposter, starring Tony Curtis. Damara himself would disappear and resurface as a prison guard named Ben Jones, but was recognised by a prisoner from the article in Life magazine. He was a familiar face now, too easily recognised to keep this nonsense up, and after a short stay in prison, this time as a prisoner, he became a pastor under his own name. A job that he liked and excelled at and was very much appreciated for. And that is how he spent the rest of his life. Ferdinand Fred Damara passed away in 1982. You've been listening to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Created, researched and hosted by me, Dan Benson. If you enjoyed the show, hit the subscribe button and continue to join me as I uncover extraordinary stories from around the globe and throughout history. Till next time, peace, love, light. Take care. Catch ya.